and welcome to the very first episode of the University of York Student Podcast. So, just to introduce myself, I'm Alex Woodward. I'm a second year politics and philosophy student here at the University of York. Joining me today is Ian Hamilton, a researcher from the Department of Health Sciences. Good morning, Ian. Morning, Alex. How are you? I'm brilliant, thank you. How are you? I'm doing fine. First of all, Ian, I want to um, get into how you actually started in your research. I want to know how, what, what guided you to this point? Well, I, I spent 15 years working as a nurse, uh, mainly with people who uh, were homeless or rough sleepers. And it became apparent really quickly the problems they were having, both in terms of their mental health, but also um, using drugs and alcohol. Um, so that, I guess that's where my interest started in trying to understand a bit more about that. Um, so when I moved to the university, it was only natural to then research um, and investigate that, that area. So that's how I became involved with it. So um, a lot of your research has been on cannabis, mm. and um, you mentioned a lot the um, rise of harder cannabis. How... Um, how has this become a problem? In, in well, the just UK? to be clear, when you say a lot of my research is on cannabis, it's not that I've used cannabis <laughs> uh, while doing the research. It's just an area of interest. But um, I, I think what's it's quite difficult to know what's happened with cannabis. Cannabis is an illegal drug. So mm. doing any research um, on an illegal drug and trying to understand more about what's going on is clearly difficult. And because it's illegal, the Home Office um, have very tight regulations and licenses around what you can do as a researcher. So that means most of what we know is gained through um, sort of proxy data. So to give you an example, one of the problems we have is we don't know how many students use cannabis. And the reason for that is the best survey that we have, the annual uh, British Crime Survey, a subset of that asks a sample of the population about their drug use. But three groups are excluded from that survey. One is prisoners, the other is homeless uh, people, and the third group is students, university students. So unfortunately, um, just that kind of quite important uh, group in the population, we know very little about. Um, so, but in terms of answering your question around um, stronger forms of cannabis, um, Again, cannabis, unlike alcohol, we have to rely on uh, proxy measures of strength and potency. So one of the things that we do is we look at home office seizures. So either at border checks or, you know, special sting operations, the cannabis seized there, we, we test to see what it contains. And it would appear, um, I've, I've really got to stress that, it would appear, we don't actually know, but it would appear that over the last 20 years, cannabis has become more potent. So I'm 54. When I was 18, 19, um, on the market was mainly uh, cannabis resin block, as some people know it, which had THC, tetrahydrocannabinol, uh, the, the bit that gets you high content of about 10 to 12%. But critically, it also had a component known as uh, cannabidiol, uh, which is uh, another component which kind of helps regulate the effect of THC and how high you get. Zooming forward to 2019, it would appear that cannabis um, uh, producers, whether they're resin or grass, are trying to deliberately uh, breed out cannabidiol and um, go for very potent forms of breeding cannabis, which has 20, 30% uh, 
THC. So that's okay. You get more bang for your buck. If you're buying um, an ounce or whatever of cannabis or a few grams, you, you're going to um, get high quicker uh, for less money. But there's a group of people um, who unfortunately are quite sensitive to the effects of cannabis and it's that group that I'm concerned about. And um, you mentioned there that it can be a bit difficult to research um, cannabis and other illegal drugs and this is a um, problem that's often cited by researchers, especially in, um, in the United States where it can be almost impossible. Um, do you think that something needs to change in regards to how the government deals with research on illegal drugs? Yes, I mean, uh, illegal drugs is, if, if we maybe just focus on cannabis, because it's, it's a good example. Mm. So what has changed, as you know, in the last uh, four to five years in America is uh, the majority of states have, have now changed their policy and allow access either for medicinal use of cannabis or recreational or both. Um, we In the UK, we've been slightly slower, a bit more cautious about reviewing the evidence for medicinal use of cannabis. But last October, the Home Secretary, Sajid David, uh, did agree uh, that access could be allowed in certain circumstances for medicinal use of cannabis. And I guess what went kind of under the radar at the time was the scheduling of cannabis. So it moved from a Schedule 1 drug, which makes it nearly impossible to research, to a Schedule 2 drug. So it's now slightly easier to research. So that's the good news. It will become easier, um, but it's still quite a palaver. It's not, not something a researcher would run towards, is trying to get all the licenses and permissions. So for, to give you an example, a concrete example, working with colleagues in chemistry at the moment to try and understand and explore the number of pesticides that are used in uh, organic cannabis, skunk and those kind of breeds. Getting the necessary uh, licenses and permissions to, for example, transport cannabis uh, from a police station to the university to conduct the analysis is really difficult and in some ways it would be easier to move you know, a great quantity of money or a precious metal like gold than it would uh, cannabis. So th there's a lot of organisation, a lot of uh, detail that needs to be thought about. Mm. So you also mentioned that your research is particularly with the groups that can become more easily addicted. Um, so what sort of groups are they? Well, I think the, the thing to say at the beginning is, despite what we see in the media, uh, in the newspapers, etc., the vast majority of people will use cannabis and not have a problem. The worst thing that's going to happen to them is mm. they might feel a bit sick, a bit mm. woozy, um, etc. But we, we think um, there's a very small percentage, less than 1% of people that use cannabis in the population who are quite vulnerable to the psychoactive effects of the drug. So... Um, they, they develop things like psychosis or schizophrenia and that can be something that only lasts a few days or unfortunately can trigger a fairly chronic illness. Um, the, the other thing just to pick up on was you used the word addictive and one of the things we're looking at at the moment is trying to understand um, how addictive cannabis is. So again, how many people does it affect? Um, so we, we think there's a slightly sexist way of um, assessing cannabis and has been for the last 20 years. So one of the questions a psychiatrist or a nurse like myself would ask to try and discern whether someone was addicted to cannabis is there are a number of preset questions, but one of those includes, um, have you ever driven a truck under the influence of cannabis? 
while clearly in 2019 there may well be more truck drivers who are female than there were 20, mm. 30 years ago. Um, but it's that kind of questioning and the way those questions are framed that I think have caused problems for us understanding how many people are dependent on cannabis. And I think to many listeners and to many people generally, it may be new information that you can be addicted to cannabis. Um, people think of drugs like heroin, obviously tobacco, cocaine, uh, when we think about drug dependency, but not cannabis. So it's important we get this right and we understand who's at risk um, and what the treatment options are for them. So what exactly is addiction for anyone who is wondering? Well, I think that's a really good question, and it's something that's um, causing quite a debate within uh, the field at the moment. But broadly speaking, we, we think of addiction or dependency as happening in two ways. One is psychologically, and the other is physically. And the, the easiest way to tell whether someone's dependent or addicted to a drug is what happens in the absence of the substance. So if you take the substance away, do they experience any withdrawal symptoms? And that would obviously include physical and psychological um, problems. So it could be a craving, it could be feeling really rough. Um, but in terms of uh, people who are using and knowing whether they're addicted, one of the things that we're looking for is this idea of salience or preoccupation. How much time, thinking time does it take? Uh, how much planning? Um, because we've talked earlier about the fact that um, in the UK, most drugs are still illegal. Uh, or even prescription drugs, which uh, was in the news um, at the end of April. Um, and the problem that we are now seeing in the rising use of those, they're legally prescribed, but if you obtain them without a prescription or misuse them, they become illegal as well. So there's a whole raft and array of drugs um, that are illegal, as it were. And using those drugs... Um, Again, many people will not experience a problem, but we think there are some people who are predisposed. So they, that could be a mix of genetics. It may be uh, something to do with their genes, but also to do with their environment and culture. So, for instance, one of the strongest bits of evidence we have is around something called self-medication. So essentially people soothing uh, their own trauma or uncomfortable feelings and thoughts. And given that we've had you know, public services slashed to the bone, um, I'm not surprised that people find their own solutions to the problems they have. Uh, drugs are quick, they're easy and often cheap um, compared to waiting lists and um, quite invasive questions that we ask in treatment assessment. You've also mentioned um, cannabis studies and women and you wrote an article um, in May 2018 called What Do We Know About Women, Cannabis and Psychosis? So um, mm. would you like to expand further on that? Well, the short answer is very little, um, but I guess uh, it's useful to go into a bit more detail. So I, I think um, most drug research has been skewed towards men, but again, let's use mm. cannabis as a, a case example. So one of the seminal studies on uh, the risks of cannabis, um, which we were talking about earlier, um, to do with psychosis, the seminal study there was conducted in Sweden and included 50,000, just over 50,000 male conscripts to the army there. But they were all male. Um, and if it had been a study on its own and that was the only one, uh, it wouldn't be bad. But uh, unfortunately, that kind of tradition or um, way of approaching research on cannabis of uh, having male-dominated samples has continued. So it's quite... And part of the reason for that is 
Um, well, I think there's lots of different reasons, but one of the main reasons is similar to what we see in pharmaceutical trials where we, there's a reluctance to recruit women in case they become pregnant um, because of all the kind of risks that might um, cause. And also because our treatment centres are, are dominated by men. So as researchers, it's easier for us to recruit samples in treatment centres because they're a captive audience. But what, that, what that's meant is we've under-recruited women. Um, and that's a real problem. You know, we, we need to, it may be that what works for uh, men also works for women, but I suspect there are some obvious differences. And one of those differences is, for example, we know that women's careers from exposure to drug use to developing a problem is much shorter than it is for men, something called telescoping. So they move from first using a drug to developing dependency at a faster rate than men do. So a window of opportunity to intervene, to provide support and help is much shorter than it is for men. You also um, did a podcast back in 2016 with a with a rival, so we're not going to mention who they are. <laughs> but um, you mentioned during this podcast that uh, the treatment for cannabis was very slim obviously you couldn't like move mm. them on to a another drug has anything changed in the three years since the recording not really um research and addiction uh, a bit like mental health is a very poor cousin when it comes to funding so obviously the the big areas of health funding are around cancer around coronary heart disease diabetes those sort of areas so there has been a commitment by the government and the health minister to uh, increase funding for mental health um, but addiction funding or funding into where drug dependency is, is very slim. And that, that fits with a wider perception around drug use. As most people, I think, or certainly a substantial um, number of people in the population, wouldn't support um, using scarce resources to investigate and explore drug dependency. Their view is that's a self-inflicted choice. The person's uh, decided to use drugs so on their head be it whatever the consequences are um, I would argue strongly obviously um, uh, on the other side of that and actually the choice that many people have is not a choice at all you know these people have often been traumatized through some form of abuse or some kind of uh, really quite um, bad thing I guess happening in their life so whether that's um, you know something as awful as rape um, or abuse, psychological, physical or sexual abuse. And as I was saying, they're using substances to try and mitigate and try and uh, self-soothe and cope with those feelings and thoughts. Um, you also mentioned during that same podcast um, that there has been a rise in the number of people needing um, cannabis treatment, particularly among younger people. Um, is this a genuine rise or has there been um, statistical errors in the past? No, I, th I think the rise is fairly genuine. Um, what, what's less clear is why the rise is happening. So, um, you know, York and the research group that I represent was one of the first to pick up on this trend. So no one had really noticed up until 2016 that cannabis had now replaced heroin as the drug people were most likely to present to specialist drug treatment with. Uh, so that's quite shocking, really, because most people view cannabis as a very benign drug. Um, you know, it doesn't cause the kind of problems that you would see with heroin or crack cocaine. Um, so clearly that needed investigating. So along with colleagues in Leeds, 
um, and Birmingham, we started exploring why that was. So we, we saw, you know, a really significant increase in the last decade of the number of people um, accessing treatment. And what we found was that actually, contrary to popular belief, these people were presenting, um, as I say, with cannabis being their primary problem. And what they were saying was they were having problems with impulse control, which to you and I just means they were um, flipping out, getting really angry. Um, they're also having problems with relationships and money. Now, that's not normally what you'd associate with cannabis. You might associate that with alcohol or stimulant drugs like um, amphetamine, speed, etc. Um, so clearly, we need to rethink our view of cannabis. And again, you know, it's not, uh, although numbers have increased really significantly into treatment, still a very small proportion of the overall number of cannabis users. But as you intimated, the problem we've got is we don't have a substitute drug. So when you present with a problem uh, like heroin, if you're injecting or chasing heroin, we have substitute drugs that we can give you to wean you off. But with cannabis, we have nothing. Uh, there is no substitute drug. So we rely on talking treatments. But even those talking treatments are things that people will have heard of, cognitive behavioral therapy or motivational strategies. The evidence is very weak as to whether they produce beneficial outcomes. What seems to make a difference and won't really surprise anyone, it seems obvious, is the traits of the therapist. So if the therapist is warm, open, honest, um, a good listener, um, all the things you would want if you have a problem. So does that only apply to cannabis or does it apply elsewhere? I, I think it seems to be the case for all drugs and alcohol. So for instance, one of the largest studies around what works for people who develop alcohol problems was done here at the university um, about 15 years ago. And they couldn't find any difference between all the interventions. So as I was mentioning earlier, these interventions included things like cognitive cognitive behavioral therapy, motivational strategies, uh, general counseling, and a mix of all those. And they couldn't find any difference. And this was a multi-center trial, so it included centers from around the UK um, and in America as well. So that, that again points to what did make a difference was the type of therapist that you saw. So again, those attributes or personality traits that the therapist had. Um, so that's common sense. You know, I think most people would agree with that. So where do you see the future of um, the study of cannabis, both in the treatment and in how we're scientifically moving forward with it going? Well, I think everything's up for grabs uh, in terms of investigating cannabis. So just to quickly summarise some of the points we've mentioned is we, I think we do need to understand um, in a more detailed way what... Uh, who's presenting for treatment, what problems they're developing, and what works. Now, clearly, um, there's some logic to going further upstream and trying to work out who's at risk. If we knew who was at risk, either of psychosis, dependency, or uh, things like impulse control as, as a result of using cannabis, we could perhaps have more targeted um, education or interventions or support for that group, rather than trying to um, kind of speak to everyone that uses cannabis because a lot of that will be irrelevant for them. Um, so that's one area. I think the other area we need to look at is whether actually cannabis is becoming more potent and the effect um, that might be having on people long-term. Long-term studies don't get funded uh, very often. We, we tend to see studies funded for 12 or 24 months at best. 
Yeah, a lot of the um, effects of cannabis and other psychoactive drugs may take years before they become apparent. And then there's uh, more niche areas. So like I've said, you know, I think we need to understand what pesticides, what contaminants are being used um, in organic cannabis. So I'm not talking about synthetic cannabis that is purely um, a chemical compound, but rather, you know, um, bread, um, organic plant forms of cannabis. So understanding what those get mixed with and uh, the problems those might create for humans. If somebody was to use cannabis a lot, early on in their life and was then to completely stop. Um, could that still present a problem in later years in terms of psychosis? Well, that's an area that I guess um, individuals and critically parents are really concerned about. Most people start experimenting with drugs in their teenage years. And of course, in your teenage years, it's also when you've been hit left, right and centre with um, educational assessments as well. Mm. Um, so it's a really formative part of your life. And in the past, certainly over the last 40, 50 years, there's been the kind of narrative or the thinking has been that if you use cannabis, it can have a really detrimental effect on your memory, um, problem solving, um, attention and concentration, all those kind of cognitive facets, and that those stay with you for life. But we now have a better understanding that actually those are very short-lived. So in a succinct way to answer your question is, no, they don't. You know, be reassured that if you have used cannabis in your teenage years and then you stop using, um, there'll be no kind of bad effects going into adulthood um, or in later years as far as we can tell. So that's good news. So is there um, still like a point of no return? So if you do it for such an extensive period of time, it is going to have long-term effects that are not really recoverable? No, not as far as we know. So dose and frequency are obviously what we're interested in. You know, there's a difference between someone who might have one spliff a week compared to someone who's, you know, caning three or four um, spliffs a day. But as far as we can tell, um, even heavy users of cannabis um, won't experience those long-term effects. Interestingly, in the UK, I think the biggest problem we've got with cannabis is the fact that it's rolled with tobacco. So unlike America, where there isn't that tradition, um, in the UK, we have a, a long tradition of um, using cannabis with tobacco to help it combust. So 7 out of 10 cannabis users will use it with tobacco. And if they abruptly stop, um, clearly they may well have become addicted to tobacco rather than cannabis, mm. can misunderstand what's going on and think they need to keep using cannabis to feel... Um, or to feel less uncomfortable. Uh, but actually, what they aren't experiencing cannabis withdrawal, they're experiencing uh, tobacco withdrawal. And that really adds to the case for a change of policy in, in the UK and ensuring that we kind of decouple cannabis from tobacco. Um, but because cannabis is an illegal drug, mm -hmm. um, our public health bodies can't really intervene or talk about that. Um, does the combination of the two separate drugs, cannabis and tobacco, make it um, even harder to study? I think it does, because when any two drugs are used, they interact with each other, and it's not always easy to um, untangle what that interaction is. But the, the other thing to kind of take note of is that our understanding around tobacco and mental health has really changed over the last five to ten years. So something like 40% um, of all the tobacco that's sold in the UK is sold to people with a mental health problem. 
And we're now beginning to see um, really a flurry of activity in research around trying to understand what the effect of tobacco is on mental health. So it may be that it has a semi-protective effect, and that's why so many people with a many uh, with a mental health problem are drawn to using tobacco. So can you see just that, that kind of um, explosion of research and then we're looking at the combination of tobacco and cannabis. So we're at a really embryonic stage of trying to understand what that interaction is and whether it's beneficial, um, whether it's problematic. And the truth is for some people it will be problematic, I suspect, and for some it will be beneficial. A lot of critics of um, the legalisation of cannabis or the decriminalisation of cannabis mention that cannabis um, can be seen to be a gateway drug, um, that if you um, start taking cannabis one day you'll be on to heroin or uh, any of the other hard drugs the next day. Is there actually any scientific evidence to back that up? Yeah, it's, it's a theory that's really persisted over time, isn't it? So. Um, the, the reason we know that generally that's not true is that although all heroin users have used, probably used cannabis, certainly the vast majority have used cannabis, um, the number of heroin users is quite small compared to the number of cannabis users. So uh, currently our best estimates are there are around 250 to 300,000 people using heroin on a kind of daily basis in the UK. Um, compare that to the 2 million regular users of cannabis. Um, and clearly not all of them are going on to use heroin. But cannabis is a gateway drug into the use of tobacco in the UK. So what it does do is introduce many young people um, to tobacco inadvertently. So although we've seen young people over the last 20 years, fewer of them um, saying they smoke cigarettes, uh, we what they won't realise is that many of them are smokers because they're combining tobacco with uh, cannabis. So although they, you can ask young people um, about their drug use and they'll say, oh, you know, the only thing I use is cannabis. And when you explore that further and ask them what they use, how they roll a joint, um, it becomes apparent really quickly the majority of them are using tobacco with cannabis. So, as I say, inadvertently, they're introduced to tobacco and I don't think the tobacco companies are unaware of that. Um, so I'm not quite sure how that plays out, how they use that information, but they're certainly aware of it. Do you think, especially for younger people, that tobacco can have a much um, greater effect on future psychosis than marijuana does? Well, I think we're only just beginning to understand what the effect of tobacco is on young people and their mental health. So the, we have a lot of observational data um, so we've seen a lot um, come out over the last five to six years around the number of people with a mental health problem who smoke tobacco or use tobacco. But we still don't fully understand what the um, kind of psychoactive effects are. But it would seem um, initially to offer some protective effects um, against things like psychosis and the acute symptoms. So um, if you were to legalise cannabis in the UK or decriminalise it, would you think that the quality of the cannabis would go up? Well, I mean, we, we've already taken that first step in the UK because um, access to cannabis for medicinal reasons, although they're quite a, a kind of short and specific list, 
um, has been allowed. So the Home Secretary has permitted specialist doctors to be able to prescribe cannabis. And we think that's going to be mainly for things like childhood epilepsy or specific types of pain. The difficulty is what's going on in the wider cannabis industry in Europe and America is there's you know a lot of activity, a lot of marketing around what cannabis can do. And that seems to be way ahead of the evidence. So, you know, we have all sorts of weird and wonderful claims around uh, what cannabis can do without necessarily having the evidence. And what worries me about that is this is clearly playing towards a group who are quite vulnerable. So if you have a particular type of cancer, say, say you have a uh, brain cancer or a tumour in the brain, uh, we don't actually know uh, whether cannabis is beneficial or not. But if uh, I've seen uh, the way cannabis is marketed in the US uh, mentioning um, its beneficial effect, and it, it may well have some benefit, but the truth is we don't know. Um, so like the marketing of any drug, um, whether it's you know codeine or paracetamol, whatever it is, we, we need better quality evidence around who it works for um, and who it doesn't. But certainly to answer your other question, the quality as in um, the purity and potency being known should improve because once a, a drug is regulated and becomes legal, um, the labelling on that should make it clear. And also the manufacturing, supply and distribution uh, should be improved. It's not left to criminal gangs um, who frankly have no interest in their um, market or the people they supply to, whereas legitimate companies um, are obliged to. Brilliant. So what research projects are you currently involved with and um, what current legislation around drugs are you most interested in? So the, the main areas of research that we're looking at in our group and I'm involved with is around women and drugs. So as I mentioned earlier, we knew very little, um, shocking as it is in 2019, about women and drugs. Um, and one of the reasons for that is we have very few women in senior positions in research and academia. So there are very few journal editors, uh, research funders, or women in really senior professorial positions. Um, and that needs to change. It's not just about equity for the sake of equity. Clearly, um, as a man, as a middle-aged man, my view of the world is distorted by my experience or influenced by my experience, uh, the same as it would be for a 50-year-old woman. So I, I think we're missing that, that kind of intelligence, experience and wisdom if we don't have women in top positions. So it's not just about the fact that we haven't um, included women in research, it's the fact that we've got so few female researchers. So I guess what I'm pleading for is for people that are listening to this to consider a, a career in addiction and research. We desperately need the best brains, the brightest people, um, and a, a more balanced kind of team composure um, of men and women. So I, I, that's one of the areas we're looking at broadly is around, and particularly women's use of non-medical prescription drugs. So unlike other drug use, so if you take heroin, crack, speed, any drug you care to mention, we think roughly twice as many men as women use those drugs. But when it comes to non-medical use of prescription drugs, it's 50-50. Um, and that's from evidence across Europe and the UK. So that's a really interesting difference. And we need to understand why that is. Is it to do with access to those drugs? Is it something uh, particular, a particular drug or set of drugs that they're drawn to? And why is that? 
Brilliant. So a lot of people will have been listening to you today and um, been very interested in um, expanding on this further and um, looking at going into this for themselves. So why should they come and study mental health and addiction here at the University of York? Well, I think one of the benefits of studying here, um, either as an undergraduate or postgraduate, is, as you know, we have an alliance with Hull and York Medical School. So there's a lot of people like myself who aren't just academics, not that there's anything wrong with that, um, but who actually this is their second career. So there's many clinicians um, who've worked in this area, whether it be mental health or drug and alcohol, who use that experience, um, first-hand experience and knowledge uh, when it comes to doing research. So, so we have some ideas when we come in. Um, obviously, we need to be trained in how to do research. And critically, what I'm really proud of is the way that we communicate that research. So as you know, even in a university, um, it's quite difficult to access uh, some primary research. In fact, I only had a, a couple of emails from colleagues in other universities over the weekend saying, could I send them a particular journal article because the university doesn't subscribe to it. So, you know, let alone the public who, um, you know, may well have the knowledge around research methods but can't get access to information. So I think it's really important that we engage with wider audiences. And as you know, we do that through the conversation or at the moment I'm writing a regular column for the independent. So in whatever way we do it, um, I think it's really critical we open up the area of drugs and alcohol and what's going on uh, to a much wider audience. And um, doing a lot of research for this podcast, I had to um, read a lot of the stuff you did, and it's really fascinating. So, how do they? How do people keep up with your research in particular? Well, you can do that on Twitter or via my profile on the university uh, or the health sciences websites. If you just look for uh, staff and then Ian Hamilton, you can see. Um, hopefully an up-to-date up -to list of publications and research. But Twitter's probably the easiest and quickest way. Uh, it's Ian underline, Hamilton underline, whatever that underline thing is, I can't remember. Um, but there's, there's Ian Hamilton somewhere in Canada who managed to grab um, that Twitter handle, so I've had to use the underlines. Um, but yeah, that's probably the quickest and easiest way. Brilliant. Thank you very much. That is all the time we have today. My thanks go to Ian Hamilton for being my guest today. Big thanks also to URY, that's the University of Radio York, for helping us record this, and to the University of York marketing team for helping us to produce this content for you today. Thank you for listening, and goodbye. <laughs>